My guest today is Rebecca Torsig. Paralysed at three, Rebecca has always known there are different ways to be human. As a teacher, mother and author, she challenges us to question our beliefs around disability in the hope we can create a world for all human experience. I'm Louise Bannister and this is the Lunch Lady Podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the Lunch Lady Podcast. Hello. Hi. <laughs> we were, I'm going to set the scene for our audience so that um, we were just having a little chat before we record. <laughs> and Rebecca has a baby um, that she's just popped down to sleep. So we're just warning everybody, as every parent knows, that when we do, you have a meeting at night or you you do a podcast, your baby's going to wake up. So we're, we're all betting on that. So we're just going to we're just going to, maybe not, maybe we'll be lucky. We're perched and ready, but I think that maybe you just sprinkled some kind of magic dust over it. Like maybe so. this will be the one time it doesn't happen. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on here because I've basically become an Insta stalker, which I don't like to admit. Um, <laughs> of your Instagram account sitting pretty, which is just Oh, it's just so refreshing and honest and and not to mention just I find the writing so hilarious and funny and raw and authentic. So I was really excited to connect and know that you've brought out a book. And as we were saying earlier, we were saying, you know, it's overwhelming because there's so much good stuff to talk about. So we're basically, we're going to start at the beginning and I think maybe just by introducing yourself would be a start. Oh boy. Okay. I can do that bit. Okay. (laughs) Um, I am Rebecca Tossig and I, um, I did just write a book, but before the book, there were other things that were important, I suppose, to mention. So, um, I have been disabled for most of my life. Um, so I had, uh, I became paralyzed when I was about three years old. So I grew up using a wheelchair and kind of operating on this whole other uh, plane of existence than most of the people around me. Like I grew up in a really big family and we didn't really make much of the disability. I was just kind of one of the crew and for good or bad, I think there were really beautiful, lovely things about just kind of being accepted as I was. And then also maybe some, I didn't have a lot of space to, or modeling to reflect what it meant to be so different and to grow up in the world from that different perspective. So yeah, it wasn't until I was in my late twenties that I started reading and studying and kind of absorbing what it means to live in a body in a world that doesn't consider it or isn't made for it. And that was sort of like one of those earth shifting before and after life changing experiences to start thinking about my whole life through this new lens of disability. And um, so I was in graduate school and rethinking everything and re- looking over all my memories and, and thinking about my experiences in the world and what they meant to me and where I fit in the world and why. And I didn't know exactly what to do with all of that energy. So um, I did start this Instagram account that you mentioned um, about five years ago now. And really the idea was just that I needed some kind of space to begin to process all of that um, reflection and, and rethinking So I started what I kind of came to call these mini memoirs, just like thinking about a memory or uh, something that had just happened or reflecting on an idea, um, all wrapped up in this disabled body of mine. And 
I spent a lot of time there because it's been like five years. So um, I was just really surprised by how important that space came to be to me. And I was surprised that people cared to look at any of it. Uh, I'm still surprised, Louise, that you, like when you mentioned that you were face- Instagram stalking, I'm like, wow, really? Um, I'm just always shocked that, that the things that I'm thinking about mean things to other people because they feel so deeply personal and specific, but, um, that space kind of grew. And while it was growing, I think the things that I had to say were kind of growing. So I started to bump up against that, um, that limited space of online social media and, um, and wanting more room to sort of tease out the ideas and, and explore them and tell more stories. So that's what the book is. The book kind of grew from that space of, of wanting more room. And I wrote it in the corners of my days while I was teaching high school. I don't know how a whole book came out of those. Like I squeezed that book out of like the extra minutes on weekends and Thanksgiving breaks. And, um, and now it's been out in the world for, oh my goodness, like over two months now. I don't understand wow. time anymore, but yes. Yeah, so um, those are so. I, I gave a, a, a. I guess that's more of like the autobiography version of my introduction. Uh, a lot of details there, but that's kind of I, how we got to this place, I guess. This place, yeah. Well, I suppose let's because because I've read I've read most of the book and I've I've dug dug quite deeply into the Instagram account. I'm I'm fascinated how you start the book, and I think this would lead into the audience knowing a little more about you about your childhood so to Mm. explain like where what position you came in the family and sort of just that whole period of time after you became disabled um and just how they treated you I found that really fascinating yeah I me too it's it's they're special memories to me because it's nothing else in my I mean I think that's true for most of our childhoods like nothing else even comes close to replicating a lot of like the feelings and experiences of that time. But um, yeah, so I am the youngest of six kids. Um, My parents had many children, which blows my mind now that I have one. I do not know how they did this. So six kids and didn't have like a lot of money in our family. So we um, were kind of always like scrimping pennies, I guess you could say. And we, so we were kind of all like climbing over each other essentially in our house. We had um, four kids in one room with two sets of bunk beds. And um, so when I became paralyzed uh, really young, I was about three um, from cancer and my spinal cord, um, We, my parents didn't really um, make any accommodations to the house or um, we didn't have like a big shift as a family. Like now Rebecca's disabled. So we're going to do life differently now, or we're going to think about her differently. I mean, there was just no, nothing, nothing different. We just kind of kept on as we were. So I slept in the top bunk on the top floor of our house. And, um, and I just learned to crawl up the stairs and crawl up the side of my bunk bed and kind of topple into the top bunk there and loved, I mean, like, um, that was a coveted space, the top bunk. So I wasn't about to like, let someone else take it. And my siblings. So I had, so there's five of them older than me. My oldest sister is 12 years older than me. And then the sibling that's closest to me is my sister, Sarah, and she's two and a half years older than me. So Sarah doesn't really remember me 
is any any other way. Um, she doesn't remember me not being paralyzed. Um, my sister Laura, who's the oldest, was almost like a second mother to me. Um, so she would have been like a teenager when I was paralyzed. But but for all of them, even my oldest sister, who would have remembered me before, it, it's always felt like I have just been entirely their sister, um, exactly as I am. Like I I've never felt singled out or seen as anything other than who I am in my whole entire person. And I guess that's striking to me because as I've gotten older, that's pretty rare. It's, um, there's always something, you know, there's always some slight barrier or something that feels a little bit different. Like I, I need to get to know somebody a little bit first before we are even approximating that kind of comfort level. And, and not because of any, I mean, it's, there are people, I mean, the people in my life are wonderful and lovely, but there's always just something, you know, a little bit different where we have to kind of navigate through that initial awkwardness. Even my partner, Micah, who is my favorite person I've ever known in my whole, in the whole universe. Um, when we first started dating, there's just things to figure out. Like when we're walking down the street, do I walk next to you or do you want me to push you? Or do you want me to, where do I put my hands? You know, there's just things to figure out. But with my siblings, it, it just has never been that way. I've only always ever been Rebecca to them. And they've only always ever been Laura, Jonathan, David, Benjamin, and Sarah to me. And, uh, in some ways that was one of the, one of the most heartbreaking moments to me in writing was thinking about that space and recognizing that like that feeling that we had as children kind of clamoring around over each other and being only our, our most un, unaffected or unaware selves together can't really be replicated. Um, so there's something really special about holding on to that as a as a special memory in the past, but did you was, did you talk to your mom like about? Have you sort of reflected on that with your mom about why she just kept going? You know, what was her? Did she think let's just keep it normal for Rebecca? Did she have any thoughts about that? I have I have talked with her about that a little bit. She, my mom is such a fascinating person to me, and she's very different than me, and I think. In some ways, she's not an overthinker. And I think for both of my parents, and I, I don't know how much of this is just like something that eventually happens when you have enough kids and you don't have any extra resources to overthink anything anyways, because you're just kind of scrambling at each moment to like, uh, what's the next thing and who needs to be cleaned and what food needs to be made. Yes, but um survival. Yeah. yeah, survival. I think that's a, I think that that is a lot of how she might describe it in her own her I'm using that word. I don't know that she would have used that word, but um survival. I think that they they were making it to the next thing and keeping everybody afloat. And I think, you know, it's interesting when when you start getting older and you start realizing that like the way your family did things isn't the way that every family did things and or does things and it's really stood out to me as I've gotten older, how much my family is one of the muscles that we have built together that's really strong is just surviving, like barreling through and getting through the hard thing and laughing while it's hard and and just kind of getting through that that difficult thing together. And my partner Micah's family is much more of like the problem solving family. And so mm -hmm. for them, it would have been like, okay, what do we need to do? 
what are the classes we need to take? What are what is the information we needed to learn? What can we how can we rearrange this space and make the load easier? And we just didn't do that kind of thing. It was much more just like, isn't everything crazy? Let's just laugh and keep going. Um, I think that 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 there's a tremendous superpower in that, and then also a, a weakness on the other side of it, which is like, well, maybe things could have been we could have continued to survive and laugh, and things could have been a little bit easier at the same time. But that's just not really how we did anything, and it's still just an overdeveloped muscle, I think, for all of us. Yeah. yeah. When did you realize the world sort of viewed you as different? You talk about this in your book a bit. Mm, yeah. Um, man, it, it, I think it was a long and slow r- recognition. Um, I started to notice the way that other uh, adults and children um, interacted with me. Um, and I think that I would, I would, I didn't talk about this in the book, but I think that it became especially apparent to me. Um, we moved when I was eight years old to a new town. So I was, I started at a new school and the kids that I had gone to school with in my old town had kind of like my siblings had known me for a really long time. Um, and so I was, I felt a little bit, I felt more comfortable with them. And then I came to this new town with new people who didn't know me. And it was that it was that it was jarring to, to see how they interacted with me. It was, it didn't feel the same as my friends, what felt like home at the time. And um, the way I've kind of thought about it was, um, it wasn't that people were cruel to me. And it wasn't that people overtly excluded me exactly. But it was a little bit more like feeling like a class pet more than a new kid. I was something kind of exciting to be around, but not get to, I mean, not really be seen as who I was, um, as just like this person. So I, uh, I started like, so the kids at school, um, were really excited to get to like push me around at recess or really excited to, um, to like help me at lunch. And I started making like lists where I would get, I would kind of like put people in line on a list. So, um, you know, like Lindsay really wanted to push me around and I would say, I'll put you on the list. So like next Thursday at recess, you can push me. Um, which is, I mean, there's like a sweetness about that, I guess in some ways, like people being excited to interact with you, but it, it, it wasn't, it felt weird. Um, and I think it was because I, 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 in some ways, I was kind of like the shiny new object more than like the new person. Um, so that was maybe how it, it felt like when I first started noticing it with other kids. Um, but I, I did notice that there was a, always like a little bit of drama around me when I would like say something that felt kind of offhand to me. And then like an adult would almost like start tearing up, you know, like just sort of uh, things that I thought that were casual and normal. And there was, there was like an overreaction. It felt like from adults, a lot of times, like it meant something more to them than it meant to me. My parents were, or are um, really religious and um, they would take me to church and have me talk to the church about things. And I didn't ever really know exactly why or what it was I was supposed to be saying, but people would cry a lot when I talked. And I remember by the time I was in elementary school, I ran for some like class officer position and, um, and ended up saying something in my speech 
about how I was going to be really qualified to be this class officer because I'd been through a lot of hard things in my life. And I remember when I wrote it, I, I said, I said something like, I've been through a lot, through a lot of hard things in my life, but I know how to overcome them or something like that, something like really inspirational. And I remember when I wrote it, th- not thinking like this is true, but thinking like, oh, they'll really love this. Like this will really get them, you know, like everybody, people are going to cry. So by that point, I had kind of learned that that was part of the puzzle, that there was something that people kind of were looking to me for. And I knew kind of what to give to them by that point. So um, like looking back on that now, because I know that you're a school teacher, like looking back on that now and the learning from that. So other people can, you know, if there's teachers listening to this or there's classes with um, kids like you in them or just kids that are not, you know, um, in inverted commas, the <laughs> society normal, you know. Yeah. What, what's your advice for that? Like looking back and, and seeing a kid like you, what, what would you say to teachers how they should have, what, what should have been done, I suppose, or what could be done better? Yeah, that, I think that's such a good question. Um, and, and, and other people have asked me that too and I kind of stumble over my answer. Um because I think that in I think in some ways childhood and adolescence there are things that are painful and uncomfortable for all of us and and some of that is unavoidable and it's more just about like riding the waves and and hoping that we come out the other side knowing that we're safe and um, and we learn how to process all of our baggage later and I, I you know like there's some of that I think is is what we do as humans but. Um, I think there are a few things that make I, that I hope I think hopefully are already making a difference. I think one thing is the representation of disability in the stories around us, um, and that's not something I mentioned in terms of growing up and processing my difference. But I think one thing that was an important part of me feeling um, really strange and different, and and like a lot of shame around that difference was just that every story and screen and magazine cover that I consumed was covered with people that didn't look or move or look anything like me. And so I never really saw disability represented in a way that was empowering or interesting or nuanced. It was it was always unfamiliar. It was always in the extremes. It was often medical or or inspirational or pitiable. And I think now there is, we're moving in a direction where there is representation of people's stories um, in the world, in stories that kids could pick up and read or watch on screens um, or role models that they could find online of people who are disabled and living beautiful, gorgeous, exciting, interesting, nuanced lives like any other human being. And I think that that makes a huge difference to be able to see yourself um, reflected back to you in a way that is empowering and um, and honest and real um, is really important. Um, but I think another part of that in, is community. Um, so not just seeing it represented in screens and in books and stories and stuff, but actually being able to connect with other people who know that experience and I think, you know, the internet is full of a million and 10 horrible things that like destroy us as humans. There's all kinds of awful stuff um, that I, I feel like I'm feeling that more and more lately. But also one of the most beautiful things about 
the internet is being able to find people who um, understand your experience and um, and have have lived that or are living that. So I uh, I kind of I, I wonder what it would have been like if I had connected with a community of disabled kids who were also the new kids in their school or you know navigating cafeterias and recess and I think having that community that understands what you're experiencing and and reinforces that you are not the only one feeling this way and you're not awful for being in this position or you don't need to be embarrassed um, that you have different needs than other people. I think that's really powerful. At least that's been really powerful for me in my adulthood. And I imagine it, it would be for a kid too. And I, and I think that's a really, yeah, a really good point to go on to because I, I love your explanation and description of being a high school teacher and your expectations of that in the book compared to the reality of what happened. And I wondered if you could share that experience um, with the listeners here about your yes. experience. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that was a tough chapter to write in the book, honestly. Um, I did not enjoy going back into those memories for lots of reasons. It was a really uh, brutal first year. Um, I had been teaching at the college level um, at through my graduate program for a while, but I'd never taught high school before. Um, and so three years ago, um, I got this job teaching at like a small independent, pri- like a, a college prep um, high school. And I had just come off of graduate school. So I was like, glowing with all of this exciting knowledge that I'd just been feasting on for the last few years and couldn't wait to share it with these kids. And and then it had been so transformative for me that my graduate work and I couldn't imagine a world in which other kids weren't just like lapping it up and and feeling that same transformation with me. But um yeah, I, I taught a disability and literature class to a group of seniors in high school and and there were so many reasons why that semester ended up being a disaster. Um, one of, I mean, one is that I just never had taught that age group before. So I, there's just a learning curve in terms of how to present content that um, is going to be more accessible or engaging or exciting to high school kids. And I didn't, I think just being a new teacher um, at that school is sort of like, you, you. it's almost like being hazed, like the kids are just not going to have it from you when you're new. But they, yeah, it was brutal. Um, the kids uh, did not uh, connect with that content. They did not, uh, they, they were really, I think at best that most of them were rather disinterested and I think at worst they were pretty hostile to the the ideas and content that I brought into that class um yeah I I basically I brought disability studies as a concept as a framework to the class so thinking about the difference between looking at a disabled person as the individual problem to fix versus looking at the environment surrounding that disabled person as as a space to imagine a different way and and and, and kind of transforming the experience of that disabled person by focusing on the problem of the environment. And then we we like read literature and watched films through that lens and it was there was so much pushback um, and uh, kids that just were not, um, couldn't, could not, did not want to look at the world that way. Um, And it was shocking and it was painful. Um, 
Yeah, it was brutal. And, and, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't even, when I do readings now of the book, I have not read from that chapter yet. Um, Cause it's really wow. painful. Yeah. I think the, the ground shaking um, realization for me with your book was about ableism, you know, about this definition um, of ableism and how it's almost like, you know, whatever you taught in the, the stuff you taught to those high school students is definitely just the stuff that every adult needs to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially open-minded, curious adults that really want to make the world a better place. So I wondered if you could explain, um, like like our audience, mm. all those things. So explain a little bit about um, ableism, your definition of it, and, yeah, just that idea of forever we've thought, you know, there's something wrong, whereas we haven't looked at actually what's wrong is the way that we haven't been inclusive mm. or the world if that if I've got the the general gist of it right yeah um, yeah 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 uh, um it, I mean I think that is a, that is one of the huge shifts is when you bring ableism into focus and you look at the world through that lens is where do we identify the problem what is the thing that needs to be fixed here um so I think that's really important so my the my definition of ableism the one that I came to try to hone down in the book um, cause I actually write about it for like several pages. So I think the most condensed, I really tried hard, like what's the way I could condense this the most. And I think the place that I land in the book is, um, the ableism is kind of a description of the way that we take this idealized body as the center of, of how, uh, almost like the, the imagined prototype that we use to shape all the world around us. So we picture the most beautiful, the youngest um, body that never ages, the body that doesn't have any limitations, um, that is kind of in its in its prime moment. Um, and then we shape the world around that body. We shape our work systems around that body. We shape our ideas of love and romance around that body. We um, we choose that body to be overrepresented. Um, in our stories, and we look to that body and let that body kind of inform our world. And then, then the the body that doesn't fit that prototype, depending on how far off from that prototype that body is, it will be punished in some way by not fitting into or conforming to that imagined, idealized form. I say largely imagined because I just don't know how many people, how many of us actually fit into that endlessly healthy, fit, ageless body. I mean, and, and eventually none of us do, and that's inevitable. But um, yeah, so when we when we shape the world around that vision, all of us eventually get punished by that. And so instead of thinking about um, fixing all of the people to try to get closer and closer to that idealized form, it seems to make a whole lot more sense to create our spaces, both like physical and tangible spaces, but also just our ideological ways of thinking about the world to be more accommodating to a broader range of human experience and human bodies um, that have different needs, um, that have different limitations and, and assets. Um, and creating more points of access as much as we can at every turn just is better for everyone. And so I, I don't know, I can keep talking about that, but that's kind of, uh, I think, the most succinct gist of it. Yeah, I think that's so, yeah, I mean, tied in with all this bigger world picture of everything needing to be shaken up, you know, mm. I, I, it really resonated with me when I read it because if you don't have, you know, 
disabled people in your life, you just don't think about it. You Mm. really don't. But even just you talking to me through the book, I was in a shop the other day and I was like, oh, they've got a ramp. Good. And (laughs) then I was like, oh, this one doesn't. And then I looked at my own house and I was like, this would be really difficult for somebody Mm. to come here. Mm -hmm. Stairs everywhere. And, you know, why wouldn't you even think about that when you design a house? Or, you know, so I think it's really important. I just wanted to thank you for, um, yeah, just talking about it and making it. Um, it really resonated with me, and Good. I'm sure. I lo- I'm I'm so glad. I think it's interesting. It's interesting because in some ways, it, the ramps and the like, looking at our houses and stuff, and thinking about it in terms of ex- accessibility. I think one of the things that I'm excited about or hopeful about with the book is that we would start thinking about some of those design elements, not just for like the disabled person in our life, but like. For each other. I mean, I think my partner, Micah's parents are moving right now and they're moving into a house. They, it was very important to them because they're getting older that they move into a ranch so that they don't have to walk up and down stairs as they get older. And, and by extension, it's going to be easier for me to get into their house because, uh, fewer stairs. And so I, I guess part of what I'm thinking about in the book is just the ways that all of us, even if we don't have a disability, you know, like we don't have the official title. We all have bodies that are going to age or that are kind of moving in and out of disabling experiences. When I was pregnant uh, just recently, I was like, oh my goodness, there's so much about this experience of pregnancy that is just like everything about being disabled, Um, like experiencing your body change and and have these new limitations. There's just so many ways that we move in and out of or ultimately all move toward being disabled that I, I think we should have ramps everywhere, not just for the wheelchair user, but because like, you know, our grandparents are going to have a harder time getting up the stairs or someone's going to break their leg or someone's going to be having like, um, really bad back pain or something and, and have it be using a cane. I mean, it's just, we all, our bodies are all in flux and wearing down. Um, and I don't know, I know we don't always like to think about it that way, but I think we would all benefit from thinking about it that way, um, especially over time. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. You know, my parent-in-laws have just moved from their double-story house to a flat house, a much smaller, and, you know, my mum recently did the same because it's true. It's like we're all changing all the time and yes. you, you don't know what's going to happen either and yeah. you don't know, yeah, not, yeah, the young, fit, kind of healthy person, you know, I mean, who even is that, you know, really? Yes. You're talking about elements mind body <laughs> yes exactly exactly who is that person I don't know them yeah. I haven't met them <laughs> um I want to talk about motherhood because you did touch on that just then I, I'm, I'm you know dying to talk about your family because you mm. you write this beautiful um and I quote on your Instagram post um you're talking about your family Micah Otto and yourself and you say we are weary grateful and clinging to each other like three nerds in a high school lunchroom <laughs> and I just thought, what a beautiful analogy for one. And I just visualized, but also I know you've been through a lot, but first of all, I want to start at motherhood because how has it been and what was your expectations of it? And talk about that. I can, I can, I don't know that I'll make sense. I, um, I have a lot of feelings. Um, it is so wild. I mean, 
I've never been more exhausted or perplexed by another human being. I'm, he is so much, he is, he is so intense. Um, and I will, I will just be like worn down by an hour of crying, trying to get him to go down for a nap or something. And then I'll finally get him down for a nap and I'll, I'll close the door quietly and like step back. And then I will like go look at pictures of him on my phone. Like I, it's such a weird relationship. Um, he was really tiny when he was born because uh, he was born a little early and he nearly doubled his birth weight in the first 30 days of being on earth. And he wow. has not, uh-huh, he's not slowed down. He got his first teeth when he was three months old. He's just like this explosive um, force that I am like, can't stop staring at. Um, yeah. He's, um, and had that, has that been something you'd thought about? Like you wanted to become a mom that was on your kind of list or were you um, like, eh? you know, I write about this a little bit in the book. Um, I really have not ever seen myself as a, a mom. Um, I, I grew up in a family where it was kind of like assumed that you would grow up and want to be a mom. And so um, it was kind of, it was sort of a, I had, to, I had to kind of start thinking about that in adulthood in a, in a new way and think like, well, first of all, is this something that I, I really want? Is that just the obvious thing that I want? And then second of all, is that something I could even do? I don't, I don't even know. I didn't know if I could get pregnant. I didn't know how to imagine how I would parent, like what kinds of like tools I would use or what it would look like to navigate parenting with a little person who's dependent on you. So I, I think um, the way I just say it in the book is, I think I say something like, I've, I've said for a long time that I don't want kids, but the real truth is that I don't know if I can have kids or what it would look like for me to have kids. And so I, I think I didn't ever really have a very settled position on it. Like, do I, do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? And because I don't know if I can and how much am I trying to protect myself by saying I don't mm. want kids because I don't want to have to try and want I don't want to put myself in the position of wanting it and not being able to have it. So it was just kind of this tangled tornado. Um, and Micah and I, my partner, kind of ultimately decided that we we thought like tentatively that that maybe we would like to try. Um, and then immediately we were pregnant. So um, that was mind blowing. I mean, like I was totally stunned by that. I don't think that I really thought that I could conceive a babe, like conceive at all. And then I, the whole pregnancy, I was somehow convinced that I, I wouldn't be enough for him, that I, um, that I wouldn't be a good enough home for him to make it to delivery, but he was fine the entire time. Um, and he, Absolutely thriving and growing teeth. <laughs> right. <every month. laughs> it's like, what is happening? I know. That's that's amazing. That's so cool. Tell me about Micah because, you know, obviously I've fallen in love with him as well, um, being introduced to him through your Instagram feed and the book. And um, tell us how you met him. Yeah, I could talk about Micah for a long time, so you might have to cut me off. Um, he is – I am so in love with that person. Um we met online, um, I, as is becoming more and more the norm, I guess. Um, we, yes, we wrote letters back and forth online for a month. Um, which at the time I was like, 
what is this? Does, is this like guy, does this guy just want a pen pal? What is happening? Um, but he also wrote like these beautiful letters. And so every time I got one in my inbox, I was just like, stop everything. Um, and we, yeah, we wrote letters back and forth for a month. And then, um, we went on our first real life date and sat and talked all night long. And my roommate got scared that I had been kidnapped um, because I stopped responding to any of her text messages because I just like could not um, get enough of this person. And we dated for uh, quite a long time, and um, we ended up doing uh, we had we had a commitment ceremony a, a couple of years ago just to create a space to say that we we really wanted to be in this for the long haul and. Yeah, we've been together for this last October. We've been together for six years. That's beautiful. Yeah, I I'm a big fan of his, um, and I feel like most people who read the book become very big Micah fans. He's just like I don't know how his I I'm so fascinated by how he became to be who he is. Like he's just this um, thoughtful, unassuming, creative, humble, loving, patient person. And I, my, Otto and I are both very, very lucky to have him. <laughs> and tell me about that dating process. Cause was that kind of, I, I know you sort of talk about in the book, you previously dated, which sounded like there was a bunch of like douchebags in there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course. For all of us. As is the path. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then you sort of meet him and, and, and you talk about how, you know, you, you'd kind of, not, not you'd kind of given up on relationships, but you do sort of mention, you know, since being a kid, you just didn't get that close to anyone. Am I right to kind of say um, that friendship wise? Or- oh, yeah. I, I would, I have had, um, how would I describe that? I, yeah, I would, I was very sensitive to being a burden to anyone. Um, mm. So as soon as I felt like the weight of me was too much to bear, which I, of course, was hyper alert to. Um, I would kind of cut those relationships short pretty abruptly. So I, I have few very close friendships. Um, some, a couple actually from childhood still. But um, Birdie in the book is someone that I grew up with that is still I'm still very close to. Birdie is a pseudonym for actually two friends that I combined into one in the book. Um, but yes, so so I've had a f- I, I had a few very close, deep relationships, and then um, I I got married really young to someone that um, felt really safe to me, and I kind of had thought this is probably the only person who will ever want to marry me, so I better marry him um, real fast, and I did, and it was not good. Um, so after that kind of early marriage and divorce. Um, yeah, I was really kind of, I was very, especially very cautious. Um, and my, my MO was much more to like become obsessed with someone from afar and do all of the, uh, I, I don't know if I had Instagram at that time. It probably was Facebook, like all of the Facebook stalking, um, that I could and, and silently pine and dated very minimally. Um, just very, very little. And, and I think in some ways that was really important for me to sort of develop my sense of independence and, and who I was on my own. I just hadn't done very much of that work. I, um, I did a lot of that, I think, later than most people maybe tend to do. So by the time I met Micah, I think I was, I was actually maybe finally ready to actually be partnered up with another human, as much as anyone ever can be for that. Um, 
But yeah, I dating online was excruciatingly vulnerable. I mean, I just sat there imagining every way that I would be like, you know, like what people would think when they saw the wheelchair and the profile picture. Um, and just, of course, imagining every worst case scenario. But I worked, you know, endlessly on my dating profile, um, like way too much maybe than a person should um, to to get it just in the right light so that I could kind of be in control of the way that the that someone would see that wheelchair and what it meant. And, you know, that's assuming that they're even reading the whole profile that I wrote out. So your profile um, sounded awesome. I really, I really thought your profile sounded oh, amazing. Thank you. We <laughs> like would have I gotten along well. I, I, you, yes. <laughs> um, you, you were my right demographic, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and it worked for Micah too. So I guess, you know, it ended up being a good thing, but um I very quickly realized that none, uh, like, with the exception probably of Micah, nobody else online had put nearly that much effort or energy into their profile. But oh well, I liked it in the end, so that's what you got matters. The one you, you got the one you wanted, so that's yeah, good. That's right. right. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with your wheelchair because I just thought that was also so interesting. You know, you talk about not being wheelchair bound and. Mm. Yeah, I just I just love that kind of um, discussion you have around that. Well, it, yeah, it's interesting because wheel, wheelchair bound um, or confined to a wheelchair are like phrases that are really common that like built into the lexicon, and it's not that language feels so odd to me. Um, and I think part of this has to be being like using a wheelchair for so much of my life. Like, this is my body. This is how I navigate the world. And so for me, my wheelchair is like absolute freedom. And it's a part, it's almost like a part of my body. It's, it's intimate. It's, it's cherished. It's valued. It's celebrated. And so it is always jarring when people, um, describe me as, as being wheelchair bound or confined to a wheelchair when it does not feel that way. It's, it feels the opposite. <laughs> um, I, I'm like panicked when I don't have my wheelchair. That's the that's the the experience that feels confining is is somehow getting stranded without my chair. The wheelchair, yeah. Mm -hmm. What about um, in the book? You talk about how our reaction to disability is learned. You know, it's not innate. Mm -hmm. It's not survival of the fittest reaction. Mm -hmm. um, can you share a little bit about this? Yeah, that yeah. Um, well, to me, I think part of what stands out so much about the contrast of thinking about disability as being innate is my relationship with my siblings. Um, my siblings grew up right next to me, and this body of mine, this disabled body of mine, is so normal to them. And I actually ended up, um, there was like this really profound moment for me early on in, in starting to read about disability studies where um, I was reading, I think I quote it in the book about this woman with a um, limb difference. I think she was like, didn't have a hand on one of her arms and her child's comfort with that arm handless arm, I guess. I'm, that's not the right language, but hopefully you can picture what I'm saying. Um, yeah. That the the affection that that child had for their mother's limb um, and the familiarity and the comfort of that hand, there was nothing horrifying or grotesque or 
pathetic or sad about that limb to the child that grew up right next to it. Um, and I think that those sorts of examples, my sibling, the child with this um, limb, um, that with their parents' limb, I think those examples just kind of highlight the normalcy of disability. And, and it's more of the training that we get from one, disability being made invisible when we create our spaces to be inaccessible to them, then of course, we don't see disabled people out in public as often because it's they're not able to access it. So we can kind of pretend that they don't exist there. And then they don't appear in our stories on our screens or in our magazines. And so there's sort of this way that the image of disability gets um, kind of distorted. It's made to feel much less common. And then it's <clears throat> when it is brought to the forefront, it's in this really spectacular uh, I'm thinking of like Darth Vader or or the Pokemon. The most recent Pokemon movie um, has a uh, the villain is Bill Nye in a wheelchair who's like destroying the city in order to recover his original non disabled body. Like there's there's this way that disability is just created into this otherworldly distant thing that's learned that's trained as opposed to the sibling or the child who grows up right next to that and has intimacy with that body um, and can kind of model or show what it would be like if disability was normal for all of us. Mm, yeah. What the, well, here's a question. What ideas do you think we need to unpack um, when we discuss disability with our children? That's a great question. Um, I think I think normalizing disability is really important. Um, one thing that a lot of parents do, and I think it's it's like kindly meant, um, is like when children approach me and ask questions about my wheelchair in public, a lot of parents are like trying to hush shush their child and like pull them away and get them to stop talking about it, um, which I think only kind of furthers that distance. Like it's the thing that we're not we're supposed to feel strange about and be quiet about. And I think just um, I think one thing that's important is just having that be as normal as any other human existence um, that like we have, there are so many different ways to be human and some humans are old and some humans are young and some humans use wheelchairs and some humans walk and some use canes and some um, use wheelchairs sometimes, but walk sometimes. I mean, it's just um, a normal part of being human. And I, and I would hope I, you know, I have very little experience in talking with my own child about any of those, those things myself. But um, my hope is that we, I would be able to talk to Otto about just all the different ways that there are to be human and how all of that is okay and, and exciting in its own different way. Um, I think just getting rid of some of that, like, um, anxiety and, and, and drama is the word that comes to mind around like we need to sit down and have this formal conversation about how you talk to disabled people or how you don't talk to disabled people. I, I, my fantasy, my ideal version of that is that it just could just be normal, that that could just be a normal part of being a human. Yeah. And to, to get to normal, we as adults need to unpack our own weirdness around everything, yes. isn't it? Like, yes, a hundred percent. I think you're totally right. Yes. You know, in like so many different directions, um, there are so many stories that all of us have to listen to, you know, like there's so many more stories that are waiting to be told and, and are about to be told or are just being told. I, um, 
And it feels like for so long, we just have only had a handful, you know? Um, Mm. We've only listened to so many perspectives for so long, it feels like. Yeah, that's so true. Well, Rebecca, that, I mean, I could talk a long time, but I, um, I'm mindful of the time and I, I'm just so grateful that, yeah, you could hop on the call and I might have a few more questions to fire off you over email if that's all right. Yes, if I, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I would love that. And would you believe this baby is still asleep? I just am looking at his monitor and he looks like he's out. What? He knew. He knew. You what sprinkled the magic. Like- I think that's what it was. <laughs> Yeah, we talk. See, this is what happens. Mm. You talk about things openly mm-hmm. and you talk and you bring it up and then, you know. Um, but thank you so much. Thanks, Rebecca, for your oh, time. Thank you. I, I love your questions. I, I feel like I rambled quite a bit, but I, I just loved thinking them through with you. And um, so thank you for creating that, like, comfortable, open space. Oh, and let's. I'm sure we're going to chat again at some stage. Yes, please. awesome have a good night you too thank you thanks for listening for more interesting conversations like this one check out our mag lunch lady it's filled with recipes non-judgy parenting advice and funny relatable stories about the ups and downs of raising kids head to shop.hellolunchlady.com.au to check it out or find us on instagram at hellolunchlady.com